The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome back to This Is Working. On every episode of This Is Working, we talk to leaders who have had a significant impact on business and society. Today, my guest is billionaire investor and frequent guest, Ray Dalio. In 1975, Ray founded what became the world's largest hedge fund firm, Bridgewater Associates. The firm now has nearly $150 billion in assets under management. If Bridgewater were a country, just to put that in perspective, it would be one of those 60 largest countries in the world. At Bridgewater, he built a culture around radical transparency. He then took those lessons and turned them into a book called Principles, which became a New York Times bestseller. And in the book and in his writing on LinkedIn, he tackled questions that your typical hedge fund manager doesn't weigh in on. Wealth gaps, climate change, our personal roles in moving society forward. Back in April, Ray joined me to put some perspective around what was happening as COVID closed down the economy. And he shared some visions of what's to come. Based on his thoughts about how societies collapse, he urged everyone to do whatever it took to close gaps, gaps in perception of each other and income gaps. I was curious to hear how he thinks we're doing on that front and what's still possible. But before we talk about any of that, I wanted to start with something personal and frankly more important. In December, Ray's firstborn son was killed in a car crash. And Ray's taken the brave and I think very generous step of writing on LinkedIn about his experience and his pain. He shared a little bit about what that process has been like. When I first went on social media, I thought, wow, this I don't know if I should do that. And um, then over a period of time, there's actually been a relationship built, which came back in the form of condolences and stories of what others were going through. The quality of the exchanges was um, very meaningful, maybe more meaningful than any other exchanges we've had, because you know, when you have a, a death of, of somebody, a loved one, for me, death of a son, my firstborn son, was like the most devastating experience, more important to me than my own life or anything else. And that's meaningful. And to the ability that we could have that kind of exchange in a sense of relationship, a real relationship, that, that was surprising and very satisfying. So I want to thank those who participated in that exchange and um, helped me. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for being so open and for talking. I don't think anyone would have thought anything if you had decided to keep this within your family. But the fact that you shared back and let people talk about what it meant to them, just very meaningful. And we're going to talk about the economy. We're going to talk about the world. I think all of that pales in comparison to what you've been through. It all feels trivial when you've had a death in the family, the death of a child. So I thank you for just continuing to have this conversation and just for bringing your voice out to the world. Really, it is trivial. <laughs> it doesn't seem trivial and that changes the prioritization. And I, I will be writing maybe one more concluding post of what I've learned in my journey in the hope that that might help other people. Okay. We'll be on the lookout for that. I want to start with where we left off last year. We talked as the pandemic was shutting down the economy. One of the things you said you were going to be looking for was how we are with each other, that the fate of this country and a lot of countries goes to how people relate to each other, whether divisions increase or whether we come together. 
it's been maybe seven months since we talked last. I'm curious if you think that's happening or not. Well, as I wrote on the changing world order, there's a cycle that is repeated over and over again. And there are three factors in that cycle. The first is the money and credits part, produce a lot of debt, monetize it, and the implications of that. That was with us and in the works before, but it got exaggerated. Then there's how we are with each other internally. That means the wealth gap, the values gap, and the political gap for dealing with each other. And history has shown that that could lead to civil war. There's a sequence if you have irreconcilable differences. And then there's the third influence, which is the rise of a great power challenging an existing great power. And all of those relate to each other. And then we have the stress test. And so in answer to your question about uh, how we're relating to each other, I think it's now more apparent to probably all of your audience that there are irreconcilable differences, that people at both sides have greater levels of extremism and actually, you know, want to damage each other. I believe that when the causes people are behind are more important than the system for resolving differences and bringing them together, the system is in jeopardy. So, no, it hasn't been good, and it, and it's unlikely to be good. I'd like to be optimistic, but it still remains the big thing, how we will deal with each other, and it's a big problem. Would you say you're, you're less optimistic now than you were even eight months ago? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the path was clear and written down in that book. Everybody, I hope, will read chapters eight and nine in LinkedIn, because you will see the cycles repeat over and over again. And so the path is sort of clear, and one hopes for deviations from that path. And there's been an, a bit of a movement in terms of the desired intent. But I really think that what's required is to resolve the differences. And what would be required would be the moderates of each party have got to come together. And that could either happen by, let's say, President Biden bringing into the tent Republicans and doing something like having a Manhattan Project in which there's everybody agrees that there needs to be a form of restructuring, have smart people, bipartisan, dealing with the changes that are necessary, something like that, a bipartisan thing, or perhaps the development of a third party where the moderates can come together. And so there's choices because historically the swing power can have a significant effect. And I think right now in each of the parties, the wings of those parties are at risk. And I worry that the moderates will not have a place because if you look at history, you see that um, you can't be a moderate. The circumstances get to the point where you have to make a choice. And they say you make a choice and moderation is perceived as weakness. So that polarity, I think, is likely to increase. I'd love to get your thought on what businesses' role is here. In the last year, we've seen uh, CEOs and leaders really starting to speak up on topics that they hadn't spoken up on before, really feeling like they need to get drawn into this conversation around division, polarity, racial equality. These are things that business leaders in the past haven't necessarily added their voice to. So on this topic of division, on wealth gaps. What is business's role either in bringing us together or just speaking out about it? 
It wasn't much more than a year ago that I wrote the piece on LinkedIn, which was called Why and How Capitalism Needs to Be Reformed. And that was a very, very controversial piece. And we talked about some of those issues. And, and, and then there was, there's been a movement when the Business Council um, and Jamie Dimon made that point that companies should operate this way. And there's been a movement also to ESG investing and so on, which is a movement sort of in that direction under the pressures of the circumstances. But that won't resolve material differences and it won't be enough to deal with the circumstances. And I don't know that how well it sticks. You know, a company says that they're going to do those better practices and so on, and those are good moves. But really, what is it? At the end of the day, it's what are the rules? What are the laws and how does that work? And to be able to make those changes along those lines while increasing productivity and agreeing how to do that is key because um, I'm not knocking capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I believe in, in that whole thing. But there's actually an engineering exercise that needs to take place that makes an improvement in productivity at the same time as it makes it for most of the people. And there's not the structural engineering that really is going on. So let's take something like um, robotics and, and AI and um, the replacing of people. It's an innocuous thing. It's a business needs to run its business in the most efficient way. And it's exemplified by COVID. And if you have machines doing the work, they don't get COVID. They don't strike. They don't get upset. And they may be a lot cheaper. Well, that's moving in that direction. Okay, so now you run a company and that direction widens the wealth gap and widens the income gap. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It may be good for productivity, but what that means for a society doesn't have a game plan. Like, what is that going to do? So you need structural changes that are well thought through. And what I'm hearing is, you know, good intentions and a little bit of a move, but it's not really dealing with those types of structural changes. Robin Hood, uh, uh, GameStop, uh, AMC, it's been painted as being the little guys versus the big guys are rising up against hedge funds or other people are saying, no, this is just stock manipulation or, or trying to game the stock market. Do you see this uh, movement as being something bigger than just movement in one stock? Well, there is what it literally is. And then there's the underlying sentiment of one group sort of thinking that, you know, little guys killing the big guys or something like that. I mean, what it is, is it's great. When I was a kid, I played in the markets the way they did when I, when I was young, and I didn't have much money. That group of people is getting that experience, and they engineered a short squeeze, and that's great. So it was a short squeeze. There are issues about how fast the transactions, and then there are clearinghouse issues and those kinds of things. That's what it really was. It caught everybody's attention. And it became a thing which is the little guy bringing down the big guy. Now, America has been great because of little guys bringing down the big guys, meaning you could take Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. I love that spirit. But there is also the almost cheering on uh, the hurting. It depends what it is, really. I think that we're in an environment in which you can almost have it taste of blood. 
and, and the taste of harm rather than operating within a system where you say that's part of the system and it, it evolves. I think the question is, what's it symptomatic of? What is it in the media? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. When you look at the movement of people from working in offices to being able to work anywhere, how do you think about how that has an impact on some of these divisions? Does it help that you now have people leaving big cities and going to smaller, more affordable towns and bringing their thoughts and beliefs with them? Does it create new bubbles, blue bubbles in red areas? Does it bring us together? Do you have any, any thoughts on that? That's humanity's greatest strength, the capacity to adapt and build technologies and so on. And so it evolves. And some people will say it's better and some people will say it's worse. And I don't think I'm wise enough to say other than I could say in some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse. I, I think, though, that the migration that you're referring to is due more to the wealth gap differences and the values gap differences. So there is a migration going on from some states to other states. I don't think it's primarily driven by the COVID issue. It's partially driven by taxes, and there's a financial component to it, which is the usual kind of hollowing out component, but it's also driven by differences in values and hospitality. This dynamic of a hollowing out is when you have a large wealth gap and a lot of debt and you have an economic downturn, people are going to be at each other's throats. We'll have irreconcilable differences, financial and also behavioral. And that leads people then to move if they have the ability to move. And that kind of migration is happening. Some people feel places like Miami, Austin, Texas, and so on, not just for taxes, but for how they should live, whether it's regulatory or am I around people who won't be angry at me and all of that. That kind of thing is going on, and that's going on in a big way. And that, I think, is the big thing. Technologies will adapt and we will work in different ways. It's an experimentation. It's a learning process. Let's say you get rid of the pandemic, then you have a choice and you've learned something along the way and there's been developments of technologies and then we choose. But So that doesn't bother me, but the other one does. All right. I would love to know your thoughts on what the pandemic means for renters and for evictions and how you think about housing within this whole mix of uh, how the economy functions. There's so many dimensions to housing, like 
where do you want to live and does that change versus let's say rent versus own if that's changing rent it's easier to move than owning and maybe one might think the flexibility of of that is a consideration there is um the issue of financially what is better to do there's the dimension of how do you have a better lifestyle how do you have roots do you want to own an asset now like i think generally speaking it's better to own assets meaning i think we're in an environment where there's going to need to be a lot of debt creation of the sort that we have seen because that's where the checks come from and there's going to need to be more printing of money by central banks to buy that debt and that might have a financial impact on um, on the house so that there are so many things that go through my mind along those each one of those you know i could sort of delve into but i probably would spend too much time but it's all of those considerations that enter into when one thinks about owning a house or renting a house but in general you're pro ownership it sounds like no matter what's going on in the in the macro well no i am if uh, by the bias however we're in an environment where the ability to change one's mind and adapt is important so if you have uncertainties i would you know give that consideration hmm. if it was if it was normal times and a normal place i think home ownership is a terrific thing because it's like a forced savings and it also is your environment so i love home ownership as a general vehicle but um that then there are these other considerations that enter into it. All right, I got to ask you about a question you made headlines recently by weighing in on Bitcoin which you called a hell of an invention. Would you give us some of your thoughts on how you see Bitcoin where it's useful where where and I know you've been getting a lot of feedback from huge fans of Bitcoin and people who are very anti-Bitcoin. So where are you now? So it, it the reason I wrote it on uh LinkedIn was so that people could see it in my own words because what i find is that uh people who are pro bitcoin grab the uh the, the certain sentences and that a people who are anti bitcoin grab the other sentences and you know so okay so you know ray dalio um is supporting bitcoin or or it says it's a hell of an invention and it is a hell of an invention wow think about how great it was and then others who basically you know sort of the concluding part of it also that you know it could go down it could be outlawed there are a number of things that are real concerns and it also can be you know go down 80% or something like that it's an option on a number of uncertainty things life is not um so simple so i tried to be clear in what it is I would encourage people who are interested in that to take a look at my broader assessment and I think it takes it's like in two pages or three pages so it's not long. But your take is in general you you're you wouldn't mind putting money into it as long as you are okay losing 80% of that is that right? Yeah, let me give you the big picture. Yeah. Okay. I worry that uh, we are in an environment in which there's the classic creation of debt and the creation of money and that if you look at history there are real assets and there are financial assets and the way it works is real assets are the things you buy you buy things you want to use 
your car, your house, your video streaming systems, you, somebody who helps you do something, all of those things. Those are things you're using. What's the tangible stuff, pretty much? And then there is financial wealth. Financial wealth is holding instruments or financial assets for the purpose of one day selling those financial assets to buy the things you want to buy. And there's a cycle. And the way the cycle works is there's an increase in financial assets relative to real assets that gives buying power and everybody likes it. It goes back in history, the debt cycles and everything forever for thousands of years. But let's say if you take 1700s or so, there was the discovery that you could actually pay people with promises to deliver money and that has not been earned. The Dutch really, and before them others, but the French to some extent, came up with the idea like of a company. And what a company gives you, or even what you get in debt, is the promise that when they someday earn a profit, they will someday give you a share of that profit or the bond is operating that way. So you build up financial assets that are large relative to tangible assets, the real assets. And the cycle is that if people want to get their, um, they think they've got value in those things that are going up. But what happens is there's there are too many of them. And so when they go to try to turn their financial assets into tangible assets, and a large number of people do that, that's when you have the cycle work in reverse. And so you have, you know, that's like what a bank run is. And then central banks have got to print money. And so that printing of money uh, reduces the value of money and so on. So I think that that pattern and understanding that pattern is very important. Well, right. The cycle and, and, and waiting for that moment where the cycle starts running in reverse is, I think, what we're all wondering where we are. Bitcoin serves a purpose in a sense of what there are not enough of those tangible assets. So now let's take a look at Bitcoin from that lens. Okay. First of all, it's alchemy, right? Mm -hmm. It's great. What you do is you invent the money and you own it all. And then you make other people like it and it becomes a reality and you get very rich because you own it and, and and then you have it come out and it builds a self-reinforcing cycle and it can become money. It's just a matter of faith in it because money doesn't have a reality. Money is like, it's like the tulip mania or whatever you can, it doesn't have to have intrinsic value. It can have that. So now you're dealing with that quality. It's an alternative gold, basically, or it's an alternative real value assets in a sense, except it's digital. And then that makes it have its own questions. By the way, I would say another topic, related topic, is the risks of um, hacking and digitalization. I think that a lot of people are wondering, how many risks are there with Bitcoin? Should they be owning it? So I think this is a really good framework to understand what it is and what it isn't. I think <laughs> the answer to the question, I think, has to be, you probably do not own enough real money assets, hard money assets relative to financial assets. And Bitcoin is one of those possibilities that has attributes that are 
attractive and then it has risks. Like one of the big risks is not allowing it to exist. So Bitcoin is kind of, it's a chip that one could put on, but think about what type of asset is it in a sense. It is one of those, it's an alternative gold kind of asset. Right. And that's, if you think of it that way and then start to say, you know, like how much gold do you have and how much Bitcoin do you have? You know, like I wouldn't want to have um, the majority of my money in Bitcoin. I wouldn't want to have more money in Bitcoin than I had in gold, uh, because let's say central banks, for example, um, the world's money is held by central banks who are dealing between countries. There's the money within countries, uh, which is their currency, but it's controlled within the countries and it's manipulated and so on. And kind of the real money is the money that works across countries. And so you almost have to say, what will they hold their reserves in? You almost look at what they're holding their reserves in and those kinds of assets. And history has shown that even periods of greater conflict, there's less credit. And that's why there was a tendency to go to gold or even silver. That's why sterling was, um, was the British pound or China used sterling. So you have to think of it as kind of like one of those and kind of an option on one of those, I think. That may be worthless and it may be important and it allows you to do certain things and it has its vulnerabilities. Ray, as someone with three kids, almost all of my money is now in Pokemon cards. I want to ask you one, I want to put you on the spot. If you were serving in the Biden administration or if you were advising the administration, is there one policy that you would encourage them to be focused on right now? I don't care which policies are put into place as long as they're bipartisan and they're smart enough to increase productivity. Everybody has their own way of wanting to do it and everybody fights that, oh, you should do this thing. I've, and I've got a million of those. I've got a lot of those. But because nobody can agree on anything, that's why I say, what I would do is reach to the other side of, as far to the other side of the Republican Party as I could. I'd bring them into the tent and realize that in order to be president of the United States, you know, you have to get the majority of people and, and the fringes go. And I would do something like create a Manhattan Project of smart people from both sides to re-engineer how it works to achieve the goal that it works well for most people and then i i would then say uh, those on the left and those on the right who were in that tent i would then say now it's your job to bring as many of the other people in it so i don't care re exactly what it is i have my own views i think education is a fabulous investment and it's unfair and so i can go into those things but I think that the most important thing is that we do it in a bipartisan and smart way so that we can increase the size of the pie as well as divide it well. I'm really worried that everybody right now just wants just thinking, where do you give money? And there's not enough thought to productivity or bipartisanship. That was Ray Dalio. Ray had so much to teach us, as always, in this conversation. He mentioned some of his incredibly informative posts on LinkedIn. I would highly recommend checking those out. I'm going to include links to those in the write-up of this episode. Ray mentioned that one of the things he would like to see happen is a type of Manhattan project where the Biden administration pulls people together. And Ray said he doesn't really care what it's about as long as it's about bringing people together. 
I would love to hear your big ambitious ideas. What do you think we need to do to bring people together? Let me know on LinkedIn using the hashtag thisisworking. To get more news and insights into our changing world, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Please share this podcast episode with a friend who wants to know what's going on in the broader economy, who loves history, who is concerned about the state of our world and what business's role is in it. You can get a link on your favorite podcast platform or share the newsletter, which you can find on my profile. Thank you so much. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Dave Pond and Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.